welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Max Strom. Max started out as a college American football player and made his money in his early years as the lead singer of a signed rock band. Being almost two metres tall and well built, he was not an obvious candidate for yoga. But one day he wandered through the doors of Yoga Works in LA, where he now worked as a professional writer for TV and film. He is immediately drawn to yoga at the rather late, late age of 38. At first he started with the Gengar Yoga and then moved to Ashtanga. He practiced under the guidance of Chuck and Matty. However, it was Dina Kingsburg, a recent podcast guest, who came to cover for them on one of their trips to India, that really made the most lasting impression. Dina emphasized the power of breathing in her teaching. This had a huge effect on Max, who has developed the breathing aspects shared by all holistic modalities as the core of his teaching. Max's belief is that the breath is the quickest and most effective way to make contact with and resolve old traumas and their current manifestations as anxiety or depression. In this podcast, we talk a lot about the power of breath practice to resolve painful emotional states and the importance of understanding the tool of yoga in a more pragmatic sense in order to learn how to grieve and also be there for those around us who are suffering. Max has taught in this way for many years around the world with remarkable success, not only in the yoga studio, but with company executives in the boardroom. Indeed, he's also given a fantastic TED talk on his remarkable ability to facilitate this healing. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, Max. Thank you for inviting me, Adam. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you. Um, you just want to give us like a brief background of your journey with yoga and meditation and kind of how you came to be here today. Well, the path is quite an unusual one and certainly not in a straight line. But I, uh, I, I started having some, um, some, some of the big questions of life came to me when I was 15 years old. So at 15, I became an avid reader of philosophy and comparative religions and so on. Uh, uh, this was not that popular to be in high school. Um, mm. You know, I was, I was basically reading college-level comparative religion at 15, and uh, I had no no friends who were interested in that sort of thing. So I was considered quite odd, I suppose I was in that way. Uh, I discovered meditation at that point, which I just figured out how to do on my own. I would just go up into the wilderness. I lived right on the edge of a wilderness and sit in nature and meditate. And then um, the next practice I discovered was uh, I happened to work at a place that had a very good Qigong teacher, mm. Bakwa and Qigong. And so I practiced with him for a couple of years, two years, I think, maybe three. And uh, then he moved away and there was no one to replace him. So my practice mm. petered out at that time because I was uh, involved in uh, music. I, I was a rock singer, and band leader. I had two records out in the early 80s. And uh, What was the band? I couldn't find it. 
Uh, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I wouldn't mind anything about it. I, I, I really love being in the music business overall. Uh, I, I loved it being in music. I didn't love being in the music business. The business is rough. Yeah. But uh, I pretty much got out of practice, fell out of my practice by being in that world. And then um, I took a year off to write a screenplay at some point. And that was when I was 30 years old. Mm-hmm. That's right, 29, 30. And um, there was a lot of interest in my screenplay. And I was really tired of living in semi-poverty as a musician. And uh, so I decided to switch genres, basically. And I stopped being a professional musician and became a professional screenwriter. And I made a living at that for about eight years. Not a great living, but I... I had about eight things produced and released. And during that time, the long story short is I moved to Santa Monica, California, and I was four blocks away from Yoga Works. Mm. And Yoga Works at that time was one room. The entire Yoga Works um, was one room. And Chuck was just building, one of the owners was just building the second room. So within a couple of months, there was a second room. So uh, I was uh, practicing there in the fairly early days of that. So that was 90, 91, I think the beginning of 91. When, yeah, January 91 when I started. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so I started practicing there, and it, it, it really just changed my life. I practiced mostly Iyengar style in those days. Mm. Who are you and, practicing with? Because they had a lot of good teachers there, didn't they? Younger as well, like Eric Schiffman and people like that. Yeah, I, I practiced yeah. Uh, with Stephen Friedman, who at that time was yeah. one of their main Iyengar uh, teachers. Very quirky guy, but a very excellent teacher. Uh, well, we were all quirky, I guess, all the yoga teachers. And uh, Eric Schiffman as well, uh, I practiced with. And, uh, uh, those two were the main ones for a little while. And then uh, after about a year, I started practicing six days a week. And uh, it was great because as a writer, I could write till about four o'clock and then walk four blocks and walk into this yoga center where I had a monthly pass. So it was a really good way to end the day. And like, yeah, also, yeah. also a social outlet yeah. for me. You know, you sit in a room by yourself, mm. driving yourself mad, trying to write. It's really nice to go into a community. Mm. And... Uh, so then I discovered Ashtanga, um, Ashtanga yoga, and I started practicing. I dropped everything else, started practicing Ashtanga yoga six days a week. That was in 93. Right, 93. And then what was Chuck teaching you? No, Chuck taught in the morning. Oh, and, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. I tried to get up in the morning. I, I mean, I did get up in the morning two or three times. I just thought, I'm already one of the stiffest guys here. I started off as an extremely stiff person. So you started and, yoga late, right? You started yoga later in life. Yeah, 30, 35 years old is when I started. Oh. 35. So by this time, I'm 30. It's not old, but these days no. are probably take, taken as old to most people these days. I was one of the oldest people on the Ashtanga yeah. group, that's for yeah. sure. And I thought, I'm already this stiff, and I'm even stiffer in the morning. I, I'm just not a morning get-up-and-do-it-in-the-morning person. I like doing it yeah. at the end of the day. So I practice primarily with Mati. But what really got me interested in Ashtanga was not practicing with her, but with a visiting teacher. Chuck and Monty went on a trip to India to practice with their teacher, Toppy Joyce. And so they had a guest teacher for three months named Dina Kingsburg. 
from See, that was when you, I, I just yeah. did Dina on the podcast, you know, the last podcast, one really? of the last ones. And she mentioned coming to, um, to yoga works and teach. That was her first kind of yeah. proper teaching gig as it were, you know, I think. It was. Yeah. 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 She was 27. That's funny, isn't it? And, uh, I really liked her as a teacher very much. And uh, she influenced me a great deal. She was the first teacher I found of all of them that brought a sense of essence to the practice of we're doing something besides postures here. Well, she'd be pleased to know she's still very much on the same track. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> she <laughs> Yeah. And so uh, for that three months, I, I was really flying high as a kite. I just loved the practice. And then she went back to Australia and then Mati was there and they're very different. It was very hard for me to get used to her personality, which is entirely different, like almost diametrically opposed. But yes, Matty, Matt, um, um, she's a kind of, or she was a, quite abrupt, wasn't she? She used to scream at me across the room like, oh, what are you doing? Uh, you know, <laughs> in, the nicest, in the nicest possible way, you know, but she, she was tough. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, Dina left and I practiced with Mati for a couple of months and then Patabi Joyce arrived. So he was uh, at that time not very well known in America. So he taught three classes a day, beginning primary series, which is what I took primary series and then I think second series and uh, yeah. and so some of the well-known teachers at that time came to assist him so Dobby Joyce was teaching and of course Chuck assisted Richard Freeman um, um, Eddie Stern who was 23 at that time who was really just a kid a uh, happy-go-lucky kid and uh, I really adored him he was always he was at, at 23 he was really one of the best adjusters already Huh. Yeah, he was he was remarkable. And uh, who else? I think um, Tim Miller came for a few days as well, which came up from his studio. So obviously the um, the assistants were, were quite good. And uh, that was that was pretty brutal practicing uh, for two hours a day with with Patabi Joyce for that for one month. I think it was. Well, they all they were all assisting. In, they were all adjusting you in this in this class. Yeah, it'd be two a day, and then like, yeah, right. Two days right. later, someone else would come. That's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. It's like an all-star team, and you yeah. did that, and you and you went through that. So mm -hmm. you know, you did you did all the classes with them like that. Yeah, it was about one month, and then I continued on with uh, Mati, and uh, and then they left. Chuck and Mati left again, and uh, Dina came back again for a few months, and uh, so I was happy in practicing with her again. Right. But I didn't know I didn't know you had to go back to with that Schenger. I and mean, we wasn't, you know, certainly the interesting thing is I didn't get you in the podcast, you know, feeling you had an Ashtanga connection, but you have a huge Ashtanga connection there, you know? That's amazing. Well, I practiced Ashtanga, I would say, pretty uh, pretty ardently for two and a half years. Right. And then I backed away from it. So basically, um, my knees started hurting all the time because, because in, in those days... Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. For those days, as you remember, you didn't use props. There was no, there were no props, and uh, it was a little more hardcore. And I remember complaining to Chuck and Mati one time. They were sitting together. I told them about my knees. I said, when I wake up in the morning, I walk down the stairs. I think I'm going to fall sometimes because my knees are so unstable. It, can I take out these two positions because they're really hurting my knees? And they said, no. <laughs> well, I said, well. Uh, that's a problem. And I really, <laughs> I really thought about it. 
And I really realized at some point, I, I don't mean to offend anybody, I realized this is very cult-like behavior because I, I had bought into this system that even upon injury would not allow me to modify it to protect my own knees. And I, I talked to them again about it. And they just said, no, you can't do it. You can stop before this one posture. And uh, so I decided to practice at home for a while. Uh, but, what a shame. I mean, the other thing is that, that you know, if, well, I know that Matty and Chuck latterly, you know, did amend a great deal, right? But yes. I think... I think what people talk about, and one reason I started the podcast is I'm talking about tradition. People kind of think it was one thing, but obviously this is a thing which has changed and amended over time. And, you yes. know, when you started and when I started, it was like, well, if you couldn't get into the posture, then basically you were kind of manhandled to such a degree that maybe you could fulfill the demands of the shape roughly, regardless yes. of what happened to you within that <laughs> manhandling, right. you know. And if you couldn't do it, then that was it, you know, like you stopped there. Nothing That's else. Right. Nothing, you know? That's yeah. right. But it's changed and, and it's amended, you know. But unfortunately, you never got the got that. Um, no, and uh, I mean, Badakanasana was hard for me when I started yoga. My knees were way up in the air, you know, my shoulders, you know. So of course, my hips weren't open enough to do um, Johnny Sasasana. C. I was just twisting my knee every day. But yeah, you were an American football player, right? That yes, was, just just in school though, not not professional. College, yeah, like yeah, but, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you're, you know, quite big built. I mean, if people don't know you, you know, you're not the typical Ashtang kind of body. I don't think no. you're right. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm six yeah. five. Uh, six five. Yeah, five, maybe a little more, uh, close to two meters, and uh, broad shouldered. Yeah, I, I look more like a football player than a your classic yoga practitioner. So I started practicing at home and basically removed the postures that were destroying my knees out and put in more Iyengar style beginner level postures for those. And then, so my knees started healing and I, I liked practicing at home and friends would come over and practice with me. And then eventually I started teaching that sequence. So basically I, I started teaching a modified Ashtanga practice. Right, before we spend the whole lot of time on kind of, you know, reminiscing about Ashtanga, I want to get into your actual work. So you started doing the, you know, with the Ashtanga and the Iyengar, and then you started teaching kind of hatha yoga just a more a, a kind of you know generalized system of yoga is that right what i started teaching was yeah was what you started primary series right and then how did it switch and, and why how and why did it switch to what you're most known for today which is the, the breath work primarily in the you know the more meditative aspects well uh let's see I started with Qigong, as I said. So I had several mm -hmm. years of a slow-moving, standing breathing practice um, already under my belt. and I, So I knew some of the benefits already. Um, then uh, Dina was, was uh, very good at teaching a, a really sophisticated Ujjayi breathing. Um, so she helped me, me a lot with that. And I found that when I really breathed well, for the first year of my practice, which is before I met Dina, but when I did ocean breathing, but I call it now ocean breathing, really well, that I would become emotional at the end of every practice. That mm -hmm. I would be lying in the total relaxation with tears running down my face. And I didn't understand it. And it wasn't until I met Dina uh, over a year later that I said, do you know what this is about? And she said, it's old grief that you've stored in your body and you're releasing it. And this became very interesting to me. And 
So I became very passionate about breathing and how it made me feel and sleep better and smile more. And my friends started noticing that I seemed happier. I mean, friends outside of yoga didn't know anything about it. Noticed that I seemed friendlier, happier, um, less reactive. So it was changing, not, I wouldn't say it's changing my personality, but it was um, healing my personality, mm. healing my psychology. Mm. So I really became a big believer in that. So when I started teaching, I became known as the guy at Yoga Works that would make you breathe, quote unquote. I, I wouldn't, I would stop the class if they weren't breathing well and start them again. And then I would see this phenomenon. I would see students getting emotional in a class. And I went, oh, there's yeah. really something to this. Yeah. And it's worth um, dedicating more time to. That was how it started. Hmm. hmm. Okay. And how did that progress? Like, um, you went to, I kind of read on some interview, I think it was a yoga journal interview, actually, you kind of went to India and you were kind of, I don't know whether you were ever going to go to Pune or Mysore, but you ended up kind of going through all the holy cities and having quite an experience there, right? That kind of was pivotal in your, in, in a kind of the matrix of what you're doing now. That was the year 2000 when I went to India. So that's quite a mm. bit after. I've been teaching for about five years at that point. Right. So uh, by that time, I was not interested in meeting Iyengar at all uh, because right. I had seen film footage of him, the way he taught, and I thought he was a very rude person. And uh, to, be, to be honest, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I don't believe, and I teach this in my teacher trainings, I don't believe in teaching using shame. I don't think we should be shaming people. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and Patabi Joyce, uh, by that time, I was no longer interested in practicing Ashtanga, pure Ashtanga. Mm. So I thought, if I go to Patabi Joyce, I'm going to ruin my knees. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So I just went on basically a pilgrimage. And I, the, the most holy people I met really were uh, completely unknown. They were, one was a street beggar. And one was selling trinkets in the Himalayas in Nepal. Those are the people that really had a lifelong impact on me. Really? Mm. Yeah, they were just extraordinary. And uh, I, mean, I could tell you stories about them, a story about each of them. But uh, yeah, in, India affected me. But I really, uh, I would say philosophically, align more with the Sufis, I would say. And particularly the Sufis from West India, who were um, heavily influenced by Vedanta yoga, and mm -hmm. also a little bit by Islam, but they weren't Islamic Sufis by any means. And uh, in particular, the teacher Hazrat Inayat Khan, who maybe you've read him, he, he died in 1929. I never met him, I'm not that old. But uh, I really, uh, love the way they are non-dogmatic. They refer to God as the friend or the beloved. They don't personify mm. God. And, and that it's really about your spiritual experience rather than spiritual dogma. So they really um, experiential knowledge rather than academic mm. knowledge. Mm. Mm. And so it's, it's sort of bhakti and, and that it's devotional but it's not to a statue or a photo of someone or a guru. It's more the using, let's see, what was that term? Um, the, well, the guru within, I forget what they call that. There's a term for that. Sat guru, right? 
Satguru is the guru inside you, the great guru inside you. I think it's one of the terms for it. And so I would say that's more how I thought. Uh, that was more my experience mm, and ethos mm. in spirituality. And, uh, and then um, breath was second to that, followed by meditation, followed by asana and that mm. order. In that order priority. I think I've heard you saying that the really, you know, you can't meditate before you understood the breath and, and kind of done some work with the breath, right? Or at least the breath is the kind of gateway to it, right? Yeah. Um, second, the second thing you said, I, I didn't say you have to do it first, but I said that if you're having trouble meditating. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then go back to breathing because it'll quiet your mind enough that you can meditate. It's Chinese whispers. Before you know it, I'll say, well, Max from says, um, you know, you can't meditate before you've done pranayama and <laughs> 10 years, 10 years of Ashtanga training. <laughs> exactly. No, we're not that famous yet. Um, so what, who was your teacher in the breathing? And is it, and, and just give me a background of how you, I mean, I've seen stuff you've taught on breathing, but it's not the classical pranayama, is it? It's much no. more uh, uh, immediately graspable and pragmatic. I mean, you're teaching, you're well known for teaching to, you know, kind of businesses and, you know, and well-known, you know, CEOs and, you know, like on a more of a, you know, kind of mass dissemination of this is not, you know, held within the yoga sphere on its own, which is quite nice. That's right. That's right, Adam. Well, yeah. uh, for, oh, boy, where do I start? Uh, <laughs> I'll ask a few questions in, the, in, the, in the one go, I suppose. And, um, you know, probably start with what you learned in the, your background in learning the breathing and how you then made it, perhaps amended it towards the pragmatic approach okay. that everyone could take on that you wouldn't necessarily say to a CEO of oh, start doing Nadi Shodhana, you know, like, right. Okay. Right. They wouldn't understand it, you know? All right. So I, I did the uh, Qigong for a few years and then uh, I really was into a sophisticated level of um, Ujjayi Pranayama. Mm. And when I say that, I mean, people would put their mats next to me so that I would guide them through breathing when I practiced as a student in the class, okay. I was known for that. And then um, when I started teaching, I did teach uh, some of the classical Nadi Shodana, the, the breath of fire um, type of exercises. And I found them useful, but not life-changing. And uh, then I uh, started practicing some Sufi teachers who had other types of breathing practices that I hadn't learned in, uh, in yoga. And I found them more powerful. And also, when I was teaching uh, people to breathe, I found that people in Los Angeles in 1995, when I first started teaching, January 1995, were very interested in it. And yeah. part of the problem is the way we taught it. And I know that now, but at that time I didn't. I thought, what, why would you do this? You know, this is when a teacher tells you to do something, just do it. But the, uh, the problem was, is that's how we taught breathing. That's how everybody who taught breathing in LA taught it. This is what we do. Do this. As opposed to, this is why we do it. Mm, mm, mm. It was just more tradition. Mm. You do it because mm. of tradition. Mm, and if, mm. not, if that's not a motivating factor, it's not very inspiring. So No, no. But I think another thing to say as an addendum there is I think, what I noticed at the start is no one was interested in pranayama when I started like 
probably in late 90s, I guess. Um, and I think it's a context. It's building a context up around it as well, right? Yes. Because now, I mean, we, you know, we do different workshops here and we host different workshops and the pranayama is really, really popular. So, and it wasn't, it wasn't then. So I think it is something that people are more interested in or leading on to my next question, people really need it more than ever, you know? People do need it more than ever, mm. but they need it then as well, especially in Los Angeles. Right. So I, I finally figured out that, let's put it this way. If I were a physiotherapist and you came to me and you said, I have a problem with my shoulder. I said, I, I can help you with that. You say, great. Then you say, what do you want me to do? And I'd say, do this. But in yoga, it's not like that. You just show up and they say, we're going to do a bunch of stuff. Why? Because it's tradition. It, I'm not going to teach you how to breathe. If you come to me and you say, I have anxiety, I'm not going to say, I'm going to teach you to breathe because it's traditional. I'm going to teach you to breathe as a therapy for your anxiety. And it'll make you feel better in the next 10 minutes, not someday. Mm. And that gets people's attention. So if I go into a corporation, for example, they're looking at their watches when I arrive. Like, really, you brought this guy in to teach us to breathe? What is this? Have you lost your mind? And I say, I understand. It's counterintuitive. Give me 10 minutes of your time, and I guarantee you'll feel different and better. And they would feel better in 10 minutes. And then they'd have the attitude, okay, what else do you have? We feel better right now. What, um, okay, and what do you teach them then? <laughs> what is it? I mean, tell me. Well, I teach them first. I teach them ocean breathing. But going back to 1995, when I first started teaching my classes, my modified Ashtanga classes, yeah. I realized, okay, they're not holding, this is not holding their attention, the breathing part. They give up after a couple of minutes. How could I fix that? I'm a bit of an inventor. I like to problem solve. So I had just read an article that said, if you want human beings to pay closer attention, have them stand rather than sit. That's one thing. And I thought, well, in Qigong, we stood and we moved our arms. What, what would happen then? And then I saw a documentary where they were resuscitating uh, it, was a, it was a kitten. It was like a leopard or a lion kitten. I can't remember, a cub. And they moved their arms out and back to make them breathe. It's like giving recess mouth to mouth, so to speak. And I thought, oh, well, that's very interesting. Well, what if we did some basic Qigong arm movement? Maybe that's key to keep interest. So I had everybody stand up one day. We took horse stands, you know, where it looks like you're standing mm -hmm. on a horse with knees bent. And we did these simple arm movements doing the ocean breathing, and it held their attention 15, 20 minutes, no problem. And they learned. And they agreed to do this with you? Yeah. In the boardroom? In the <laughs> I'm just trying to get <laughs> a I'm, I'm talking about first classes back at Yoga Works now. Okay, right, right. So, but yes, also in the boardroom, they will do that. They will stand up and they will do it with me. And in conferences, hundreds of people will stand up and do this with me. And they feel better right away. Sometimes they will sit down, their face will go in their hands, and they'll start weeping. Because we have so much stress, so much anxiety, people are so lost that that's all just packed beneath the surface. It's pushed down. And the, the breath um, accesses your psychology. It accesses your subconscious, as they say. So, of course, anything that's trapped is just released. And so this is what I became known for. But I, I don't travel the world to teach people to cry. 
just to cry. And I want to have them to cry and then I leave. Uh, what, I, what I aim to do is help people who have post-traumatic stress to have post-traumatic freedom. So in other words, after working with me, you don't have anxiety anymore. You don't have panic attacks anymore. Wow. That's, that's, if you don't mind me saying, that's quite a claim. I mean, you know, that's, you know, you could, you could market that, you know? (laughs) 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 I mean, you're putting big business out, you know, big, big farmer out of of business there, aren't you? What's that? You're putting big pharma out of business there, you know. That's right. I mean, how many? What's what? What? Uh, what? I mean, you probably know better than I how you know the proportions of people are antidepressants and etc. Right now, it's got to be pretty high. Well, the Gar- in the Guardian UK in uh, April 20, 2018, they released the UK's biggest mental health study they had ever. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was nine thousand people that the yeah study was done on. Did you read that? No, that's fantastic. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just Google Guardian UK uh, 2018 mental health and the article would come up. And the statistics that they came up with were staggering. For example, 30% of the people they interviewed had considered suicide in the last year. 30%? Three, yeah, 3 0, 30%. Well, so, actually, or, or just like, oh, you know, uh, not going to. <laughs> Contemplate. Bloody hell. Yeah. One out of six uh, were self-harming. Right. Girls uh, 14 years old, it's one out of four were self-harming, et cetera, et cetera. So we were in trouble with anxiety uh, and depression before COVID hit. Now, since COVID, it's much worse. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I mean, honestly, I um, got into yoga and it's no um, secret, I don't think by now. I was doing philosophy at university and I, you know, I ended up going to the psychologist or we call a counselor or whatever. Um, and, uh, and quickly before, after that, they just, uh, whacked me on, uh, antidepressants, you know? Mm. And, uh, I spent a year on them or something. It's bloody hard to get off them and it make you feel a lot worse, you know? Um, yes. I've never been the same since. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, terrible. And, uh, and yeah, really, uh, I've been on a crusade, um, against, uh, generally, you know, I mean, I, in, in all fairness, at a certain point, I feel that there's a relevance, if someone is really in the in the cusp, but uh, I think that they just—I mean, you know—just handed out indiscriminately, you know, um, and, and you never deal with the problem. But I mean, That's after right. that little waffle of mine, I wanted to ask you—you're you're having these—you uh, know—you're having these cathartic feelings, which, to be honest, I never really had with yoga so much. It, it stabilized my anxiety um, rather than kind of cleansed it. Maybe I'm still waiting for this um, this, this purge. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but if you're having this um, sense of you know, catharsis in the breathing and you say you don't want to let people leave crying or, you know, or just leave with them crying. You got all this stuff come up then. What what do you do with it? Um, I mean, for example, my mother, I tried to teach breathing once and she said she felt worse. She felt more panicky when she was asked to focus on her breath than, um, than when she was just uh, doing nothing at all. Yeah. Well, what happens is people who have a really intense anxiety is they start to do breath work and their emotions start to come up. But what a panic attack actually is, is you're trying to push the emotions down. The, the panic doesn't come up. The emotions come up. That scares them because they're afraid of their own emotions. So they try to push them down. And if you've ever watched someone have a panic attack or had one yourself, you know that people don't cry 
during a panic attack. They might cry later, but not during, because they're crushing their feelings. They're just pushing them down. One of the things I tell people is when you feel a panic attack coming on is allow yourself to cry. Try to make yourself cry and the panic attack will stop immediately. Hmm. That's really, really quite interesting. <laughs> having, you know, and kind of, yeah, having, having, you know, being in the, that experience in my, you know, my early 20s, that's, yeah, I never really thought of it that way. Um, so the emotion comes up and then what do you do with it then? When you're feeling that emotion, do you, are, are there breath works to deal with that emotion? Or, I mean, I, I suppose I'm trying to prod you to talk about your ideas on grief and how to grieve because you do have some more practical ideas on that. I do. Well, yeah, gr yeah. grief is a part of my work because we don't know how to grieve. And we're basically, we're, we are completely illiterate when it comes to grieving. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was just, uh, I was in Amsterdam about a year ago doing a big conference there, a well-being conference called the Inner Peace Conference, really beautiful event. There were about 400 people in the room and I said, um, in the middle of my talk about this, I said, please raise your hand if you've ever learned CPR at some point in your life. Do you, yeah, do you call right. CPR in, in, in the UK? No, I'm, I'm just laughing because I've heard that. Yeah, I like the story. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And CPR, resuscitation. Um, okay, yeah. resuscitation. Yeah, yeah. And I think in Holland and Dutch, they call it heart massage. Okay, so... Poetic. 75% of their people raised their hand. So 75% had learned CPR at some point in their life. Good, hands down. Uh, now raise your hand if when you were a child or a young adult, you were taught in a positive way how to deal with your emotions and especially grief or the grief of others. And in this entire room, one arm went up in the air. One. And so what I said was, then we, we know what to do if someone's heart stops, but we have no idea what to do if someone's heart breaks. None. We, were, we have no idea. We were taught nothing, just absolutely nothing. As we're going along through life where we have one crisis after the other, and we don't know what to do. Generally, I think, you know, in England, certainly you're taught to either run away or um, just ignore it. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> you know, happen, don't, mine, don't, talk, don't, don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah, an English friend of mine, after I gave a lecture like this, said, uh, you know, Max, I never told you this. And he was 62. He said, I had a sister when I, was, when I was a child. When I was nine and she was 12, she died. And I love my sister more than anybody in the world. And after the funeral, my parents, my British parents, sat me down and said, we will never speak of this again. Mm. That was his education on how to deal with grief. Um, sounds effective. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to have a panic attack anyway. That's right. That's right. So, right. So your tips on how to deal with grief. Or can well, you deal with grief? First of all, uh, it makes a difference if you grieve alone or grieve with others. So when we're grieving, especially bereavement, bereavement is more specifically if someone dies. But we also grieve, obviously, if there's a romantic breakup, you're in love with someone, they decide to leave you. It's also equally devastating, sometimes more so. So whichever it is, um, some of the time we do want to spend alone. But some of the time, I think we need to be uh, in the presence of people that care about us. 
Uh, we need to do exactly the opposite of that story that I just told you, where um, when we're in a crisis, the natural thing for us to do is to cry. It's the first thing we did when we were born is cry. It's genetically encoded behavior. And when we hear someone cry, what it means is I'm in trouble physically or emotionally. I'm in trouble. And the tribe should come to you, not run away from you to leave you alone. So if, you, if you're in a crisis and the people you love come to you and they don't try to comfort you, but they allow you to not be okay, because that's what we need permission for, right? It's like we're, we're all taught, suck it up, cow, a soldier on, cowboy up, whatever it is. No one ever says, it's all right not to be okay. You can completely fall apart. We're not going to think less of you. I'm here. We're not going anywhere. And when you feel that kind of support by your community, you will go through your grieving process actually quicker than if you try to suck it up, push it down, drink alcohol, pretend it's not happening, and hold it in your body for the next 30 years, which is what happens generally. I think a lot of it is the expectations of the people around you because yeah. basically those people want to essentially start if they want other either they want to deny it or they basically want to kind of solve it for you you know in the quickest way yes. possible essentially because they don't want to be made feel bad or uncomfortable by your grief precisely you know? so that's the, that's the lack of the handbook i was telling you about because we don't know what to say or how to say it we just feel yeah. awkward about the whole thing yeah yeah but i mean i've you know have some background in this <laughs> but it makes you feel a lot worse it makes you you know because you're then having to pretend you know it's gonna, you're feeling awful but then you're having to pretend a certain way because you're worried about upsetting those people that supposedly you know probably do care for you right um, and also at a certain point well they'll stop stop being there for you essentially yeah. if you don't play the game that they w yes. in the way that they want you to play it you we're know? afraid we're, we'll be shunned we'll be left behind if we allow them to see us broken Mm. But the, the thing is, and if your listeners learn anything from mm. my talk today, is the next time you go see someone that's suffering emotionally, I want to tell you that you don't have to say anything spiritual or, or make them laugh or try to make mm. them feel better. Mm. Uh, just like if, let, let's, say, um, let's say you broke your leg. And uh, last night you had surgery on the leg. It was a pretty bad break. And uh, now you're in the hospital today. You're in pain. You're going to be in the hospital a few days, right? And let's say uh, your best friend comes to visit you. You're really happy to see your best friend. There, there he is, shows up the first day with a big smile. So you don't expect your friend to heal your leg. And you don't expect your friend to take the pain away. But are you happy to see your friend? Yes, you are very much. Mm. And it's the same with a broken heart. Uh, our, our broken hearted friend doesn't expect us to heal them or take the pain away. But it means the world that we're with them, that, we're, that we surround them. It's like the military has this nobody left behind policy, but civilian life doesn't. And it mm. should. Uh, and so, um, that, that story, if you, uh, to keep in mind, I'm saying this to your listeners, mm. all you have to do is show up. Don't underestimate your presence. Yeah. And, and, and let them talk. Don't change the subject. Uh, don't try to make them laugh. Uh, later, like, you know, a month from now, you can try to make them laugh. But when they're in the, in the midst of the big 
griefed, let them have their feelings, give them permission to have their feelings and just be with them. And they'll never forget you for that. You'll be a closer friend because of that. And don't be afraid of tears. I think there's, I think a lot of things are complicated where they don't need to be. I mean, people really just need to be heard. And, you know, when you're heard and when it's out there, then some kind of resolution could be made beyond the thinking mind because you can never solve it from your mind. You can never solve grief from your mind and the loss of people and the loss of things that you've loved, you know? No, you cannot solve it from your mind. That's exactly mm. correct. And it's a natural um, process. It's a genetically encoded process, grieving. We didn't invent it. And it doesn't mean we're weak. Mm. You lose someone that you love. It's, it's actually a sign of love that you grieve. Mm. Mm. How have you just sh shifted from yoga, or does this relate to your picture of yoga, or what does yoga mean for you now in terms of this? Uh, I would say that I, I basically created, in a, in a sense, my own idiom, my own mm. um, methodology, which includes yoga, uh, uh, my own modified yoga, um, which which also includes Qigong and also includes some of the therapy and things I've embedded along the way. Even some of the breathing exercises I have people do are modifications or inventions of my own. And uh, so I don't, I don't really call myself a yoga teacher and I don't say what I do is yoga, but anybody who practices yoga, if you came to one of my classes, you certainly recognize a substantial amount of it. Mm -hmm. okay so what's your do you have an aim like my aim like is, yoga has an aim my aim is to help relieve the suffering of the world and in my way of doing that is to help people understand that you don't have to live with anxiety and panic attacks anymore that, that they're solvable uh, fairly quickly Breathing exercises are one of the components, but also understanding that there's a cause to anxiety. That's why it's called post-traumatic. It means it's something that happened in the past. And it's probably something you haven't completely dealt with. And if you can um, allow yourself to process the, the emotions that come up and the memories and, and let more memories come up, you can actually process the event that happened that traumatized you so that it comes to a conclusion, a, um, I call it a um, reconciliation. Reconciliation is not exactly healing. Healing is not exactly reconciliation. For example, if a parent loses their five-year-old child, they never completely get over it. Mm. But, yeah. but they shouldn't be waking up in panic attacks every night either. So I take people like that who are waking up in panic attacks every night and help them so that they don't, um, they can sleep. Uh, they feel uh, inspired to live again. But yeah, once in a while, they're going to cry over the loss of their child, for sure. But I, I know I you love that word, and it is, a good, it is a good term, you know. Reconciliation? Yeah, it is a good term. Yeah, yeah, well picked. Um, I work with people yeah. who, for example, wake up, four or five times a night in a panic attack. Can you imagine coming, waking up from sleep in a panic attack several times a night, every night for years? And 
it didn't take long working with this lady for her to um, to change that. Now she sleeps about six hours a night. And, uh, and can you give like a? I mean, I'm kind of intrigued now without quickly ripping off all your tricks. <laughs> <laughs> how, how how do you do that? I mean, what like practically speaking, like can you give examples of how you would take someone from that state to you know with a breathing technique? And what is it's the not, breathing you're doing here? It's not just breathing, but the breathing. Right. So many people are, are shut down, and I used to be one of them. Just right. shut down. You can't even feel some of your feelings. You're numb because you pack okay. them down so tight and put armor on. So the first thing is to get the armor off and open the door to your subconscious, basically. And that's, that's what the breathing practices do. Secondly, you do other breathing practices every day so you don't accumulate new anxiety. But then the other steps, and this is what my new book is about, which I'm in the midst mm. of writing right now, is going back to the origins, your origin story of the trauma or traumas that uh, cause you to have anxiety and reconcile with those events through talk therapy um, and through other uh, techniques that I, I teach people. Um, oftentimes, they just need to understand. They don't even know why they have panic attacks. And it's so interesting because I do one-on-one -on -one sessions. I do them online now, obviously. Mm. Because COVID. And uh, quite often, if I say to somebody, I say, Adam, when did your panic attacks start? And you, uh, well, I won't use your name because I don't, I don't have any idea if you got panic attacks. So I'll say, John, when did your panic attacks start? And John says, I don't know, a few years ago. I, this is the type of answers I get. Mm -hmm. Finally, I, I, I just push and push till they say, okay, it was six years ago. Okay, right. what happened six years ago? Let's talk about that. And, and once they realize how much they're carrying from that event, it really helps them to start thinking about it differently. And you know what's so interesting is this. Let's say you had a trauma when you were six years old. Every time you remember that trauma, you remember it as a six-year-old. You got a six-year-old mind, a six-year-old infrastructure, six-year-old psychology. Yeah. So, so let's say it was me, and I, I'm now 64. So every time I remember, I'm remembering as a five-year-old. I'm reacting as a five-year-old, but I'm not five. So what I teach people to do is go back at your age now to that event, through various mm -hmm. techniques I use, and look at it. And look, look at the adults around and see what they were doing, what they weren't doing. And process it through your adult mind and psychology now. And it's kind of mind-blowing because you realize, oh. Oh, you know, that's why my parents were getting divorced. So that's, mm. that's why they were doing it. That's why I got, yeah, that's yeah. why whatever it was. And, and you, you can process it completely differently. So we do inner child work as well, where your inner, your inner adult meets your inner child and your inner adult takes over your inner adult. What I mean by that is a child's not left on its own anymore. Your, your inner adult adopts mm. that child and looks after them from now on mm. and makes up for what they lacked. So for example, if the child wasn't well loved or protected, you promise the child that you will protect them and you will love them from now on. And you hold them in your imagination. And you say, I, you know, I will never let you go. I will never let anything happen to you. And I know some people hearing that just sounds, oh, that sounds crazy or that sounds 
no, it's you, reasonable. I think most, um, so many people just haven't had the time and space no. to ever actually go back and consider the traumas they've had. I mean, I, you know, like, uh, I, 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 I certainly that was the case for me before I did any counseling or anything like any talking therapy, you know, I just, I never even gave it a thought, you know, and I don't imagine there's hardly any, it's not correct grammar, but um, I imagine there's hardly no people on this listening to this that haven't had some reasonable quantity of trauma in their life, you, you know, um, Almost and everybody. to go back and yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing. Uh, I'm getting more and more psychologists coming to my uh, workshops and therapists and psychiatrists and other doctors. And a lot of the therapists are starting to use uh, some of my breathing techniques, even just one of them at the beginning of the sessions with the clients. And what they say is that it works so well. I've had one say, I will never do a session again without having them breathe first because I can get them in there, I can get them to contact their feelings right away. And so then the talk therapy is much more uh, beneficial and faster. So instead of taking a year to get to John's feelings, I can get there today in one session. Mm, mm. What about people? I mean, going back again, different techniques for different things. So how many breathing patterns do you have? How many different types of breath do you have? God, I don't know. I, I, that's a really good question. I've counted them. Yeah, because people uh, are going to be thinking, like I am, like, well, well you know, because this sounds incredible. Like, but what actually, without, yeah, coming to a session of yours, what, what, you know, we're pitching your session, right? Like, what are you, what are you going to teach? I mean, that's, it sounds. Well, it yeah, depends. If, if, if it was a group session, I would lead you through about uh, 20 minutes of standing Qigong type breathing um, movement patterns that I, that I teach all of ocean breathing with the exception of one. So, you know, longer exhales. So it's not just ocean breathing, Ujjayi breathing. So this is for anxiety. Yeah, th this is to, um, to calm the nervous system, which also calms anxiety, which also helps you sleep better. They're all the same problem, basically. And mm -hmm. uh, then, of course, if I wanted us to go inward more deeply, then I would do um, a, a very simple seated breathing exercise followed by a stronger seated breathing exercise. And uh, at the end of those, you would you'd feel very different. On the most basic level, if someone's trying to calm themselves down, a longer exhale breath? Yeah. Yeah? And what if someone's depressed? What would you do there? What's the breath count then? What's the difference? The hardest thing about working with people who are depressed are to get them to do anything because uh, quite often they have given up hope and they're, they're uh, suffering from entropy and getting them to, do, to take any action is difficult. Um, sometimes also people who say they're depressed aren't depressed, they're grieving and they're not the same thing, but they can look very similar because both similarly, they, you don't want to do anything, you're antisocial, you stop taking care of yourself sleep long hours, things like that. But mm. sometimes people say they're depressed, but they're actually in deep grief. Um, some people have anxiety and depression, so it depends on which one they have. But uh, sometimes you try to get someone who's just depressed to do something, they get angry with you. They, they, and then you think, ah, oh, there it is, there's some energy. So you, you weren't willing to go out and take a walk because you didn't have the energy, but you're willing to yell at me now for trying to get <laughs> to take a walk. It's very interesting. 
<laughs> so a lot of times people who are depressed who are actually quite angry. And they turn right. the anger in on themselves. Yeah, that's yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It strikes me that one can get the, the the I mean, you know, completely um appropriate of nothing here really. Nothing to do with anything that I rehearsed as an interview questions as generally it isn't rehearsed as you might have noticed. Um you're very just this quality of steadiness that you have. Uh, and and as we talked about before, a sense of allowing and space and presence that I get from me, even online, you know. Um and I was just trying to struggle with the, um, with the American psychologist in the 1950s, someone Carlos, who said the only thing I can, and he, he wrote a lot about psychology. He's a famous professor at, you know, psychology. What's his name? And in the end, he kind of said, well, the only thing I can really do for somebody is kind of radical empathy. I can kind of be there and be with them in that feeling, you know? Um, yeah. It's a kind of intimacy. And when I say intimacy, obviously I'm not talking now about sexual intimacy. I'm just talking about, uh, a deep connection or association where you allow yourself to sit with someone and be fully present for them mm, mm. and not afraid of their feelings. Yeah. It's just, it, it's a quality beyond what, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the teaching and the method and the breath, but it also, yes, I, I, you know, it, it's deeper than that, I feel. It's the quality of the intonation of your voice, which is very mm. reasonable and very moderated and, you know, and a whole bunch of things that are probably coming through that, right? So, uh, you know, and to that end, I mean, can you teach this on, I mean, can someone learn breathing online now if they're in, you know, a, a lockdown situation? Is that possible to learn? Yeah, we're doing a, uh, starting tomorrow, actually, we're doing a three-day Breathe to Heal event. Uh, I call them Breathe to Heal. And it's uh, 15 hours, uh, and it does work pretty well online. Not not quite as powerful as in person, but uh, they, people connect really well together. It becomes a small community after we finish. So it can be done, um, but I think we really need to. There are several lessons that need to be learned, and breathing is one. Right. So how to be with each other, talk to each other, comfort each other, and uh, trust each other to create a culture of trust. Again, like the military does, where if I have a crisis, I'm not, I'm not going to keep it from my friends because I don't want to worry them or make them awkward. I'll actually mm. tell them, and they'll actually come. For example, uh, When I, uh, let's see how many years ago it was about four years ago I had a mild heart attack it was called a genetic anomaly it was one of my small arteries not one of the big ones and the cardiologist said your your arteries you know this is afterward when they're looking at them on the scope mm. and they put a stent in me uh, in the artery um, your arteries aren't particularly blocked they're for someone your age they're actually quite open just that one so we call that a genetic anomaly and both my mm. grandfathers died at around that age of a heart attack, so mm. probably hereditary. They're probably right. But still, at the time when it's happening, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't know whether you're going to be dead in a few minutes or when, the, when you have the heart attack. Or you're going right. to be dragging around an oxygen tank behind you the rest of your life. Or, you're, you know, they're going to saw you open in a, in a little while. You don't know. So it's, it's an impactful experience. And you knew at the time that's what was happening. Yeah, it's very obvious. It's right. Like, there was nothing. Un, there was nothing ambiguous about it when you have right. a heart attack. So, um, 
my point of the story is I woke up the next morning in, in my hospital room um, after they had put the stent in and people that I know and love started showing up and I, I didn't call anybody. The only person I had called was my manager to let her know basically that I might be dead tomorrow. You know, but I, that's why I called her. I'm going to the hospital. I'm having a heart attack. And uh, she told just a couple of people. And the next morning, people started showing up in my hospital room. I can't tell you how deeply affected I was by that. Mm. And, you know, when one, one woman said, uh, I got childcare immediately and drove three hours to be here. And I didn't know some of these people loved me so much. I felt so loved and looked after. Mm. Mm. And, and here's an important thing. I don't remember what anybody said. It doesn't yeah. matter what they said. It matters that they came and mm. they came immediately. And then the phone calls started coming in. I will never forget those people who showed up that morning ever because uh, it meant to me that even if you're broken, which I thought maybe I thought I still was, you know, we still love you. Maybe we love you even more. We're with you. We're not going to let something like a heart attack push us away. We're here. And that is so healing and it makes you want to get well. And it makes you feel like you belong as opposed to now I have no value because I had a heart attack. Now I have no value because a woman has a mastectomy. Now I have no value because I have uh, prostate cancer, the common things people are experiencing. Uh, or my wife left me, or my husband left me, or my child died. All these tragedies that people go through in their life. And when they realize their community is there 100% for them, it's the difference between being traumatized by the event or simply it being a difficult, very difficult event that you go through, you come out the other side with an even stronger community than you had a few days ago. So I think it's a partly a social phenomenon you're dealing with. The way we communicate and interact with each other. Uh, and, it, and it's not so difficult to learn these things. It's actually quite simple. You don't want to run for government or something like that. It seems <laughs> like you could be, yeah, <laughs> you, could, you could be of use yeah. in that sphere, really, with this, you know, because you're looking for social change, not just individual change, but, you know, the kind of whole structure yes. of how we're dealing with each other, you know, in, you know, in, a, in a very kind of very generalized way. Um, but I, I want it to be uh, outside of politics. I want us to just culturally, culturally change. Just yeah. Like we, uh, people yeah. didn't practice, start practicing yoga in the 90s because it was mandated by the government. It, it was a natural phenomenon that occurred, and that's how I want to work. I don't want to work within the government. It's too, it's too crazy now. Politics is just a, a, a dogfight now. It's just two dogs trying to rip each other's throat out. I don't want to get in the middle of that. <laughs> no, um, I always get into this question at the end. What else? Um, what else do you like to do outside breathing yoga and, and helping people grieve? Um, <laughs> you know, how do you enjoy yourself? You know? I'm a musician. I've been in right. You still playing in my early life. I had a couple right. of records out, and uh, I still like to play my guitar and play piano. There's a piano here where I live, and um, I still like to write songs. I wrote a few songs last year. I, I don't release them. I, I don't want to be a public performer. I just love writing music and recording it. 
it's what I enjoy doing, but I, I'm not trying to make myself a, a, a performer. Should, should have asked you to do one. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. Because <laughs> I mean, you said you sung as well, right? You were, you were the, the lead singer of a rock band, right? Yes, um, that's right. I, I sing and uh, uh, I do over Tony um, uh, in my practice also as a breathing dude, tone. right. Yeah. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Unless you were fancying just letting it out now. Well, I, I'd, I'd be happy to do an overtone, but I don't think it comes through Zoom so well. No, I'm probably right. Probably right. We'll let you off. It's just sound like and, uh, some sort of space ray gun sort of sound. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The last thing. Um, so I usually ask, um, what's a guilty pleasure and what's an inspiration? Well, so in a, something just off the top of your head, what's something that inspires you, book, a person, a place, and something that, you know, just a, I should be guilty about it, but, you know, just some of the people like, Chocolate. I mean, chocolate's a bit boring. Don't say chocolate. Everyone says chocolate. I won't say chocolate, although I like yeah. chocolate. Uh, to me, chocolate's a gateway drug. It just gets me. <laughs> <Okay, laughs> I said eating chocolate, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. all sweets. Just from the past to mainlining heroin. Uh, yeah. I guess a guilty pleasure would have to be food, though. I would have to be uh, pastry, pie. I love those. Sometimes I eat those. Feel, uh, feel really good about it uh, and a little bit guilty as well. In terms of inspiration and so on, I love uh, reading uh, and listening to people who are, um, who are kind and who advocate that we are kind to each other and that we open the heart, uh, that we solve our problems outside of politics because politics is so violent, hostile, and binary. Uh, I, I love it when people like... Uh, who do you Malala, like on that sphere? Like Malala Yousaf, who's now maybe oh. 20 years old and who was 15 years old when she first spoke to the United Nations. Malala mm. Yousaf mm. Mm. Uh, comes out and finds her voice and speaks to adults and, and the audience has tears streaming down their face because... She's learned the language of the heart. And to me, this is something to aspire to that I'm inspired by is when I see speakers or hear speakers who can speak in a way that go right into the heart. And it's partly the words and it's partly not the words. You know, for example, mm. if you read uh, Martin Luther King's speech, I, had a, I Have a Dream, it's inspiring. If you hear him and see him do it, it's 10 times more inspiring. There's, so there's something about the words being carried by the voice and the voice coming from Yeah, exactly. And I very much feel that that is the case with you, I have to say. So thank you um, for the time, for your time, and for this wonderful interview. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, it's good to thank speak you. with you. We'll talk again. Huh? I hope so. Thanks. Great.